Well, the clock says it's time for us to start, so I guess we better get with it. I want to make the most of what time we have. I've got a somewhat lengthy presentation, and I also want to leave space for comments and, and questions on your part. So, first off, thank you for coming. Uh, this is Power Plays, Resolving Conflict Between Ministers and Church Leaders. Uh, do we have any ministers here of any kind? Okay, so uh, a couple. Okay, three. Uh, any who are elders? couple. Any who are church leaders in a church that doesn't have any elders? No? Okay. Um, my name is Dave Schultz. I'm completing 29 years at the Ventura Church of Christ uh, as of July the 1st, and I'm going into semi-retirement at that age. I have uh, spent 42 years in paid ministry with 10 years of volunteer ministry before that. So I've had the opportunity to experience a lot in churches. My, my uh, experiences, though, I have to tell you right up front, uh, have been in California almost exclusively. And, uh, and that's first-hand experience as well as a certain uh, second-hand experiences in terms of listening to some interesting stories from folks uh, from other places. Um, I've served five churches in California in, in that 42 years. Um, and so I, I think I have a handle on the realities that have to do with the relationships between ministers and elders in churches of Christ. Mark had been in ministry for 17 years. He had prepared himself well, and he kept current in ministry-related matters. For the past seven years, he had been the preacher at the Glenhurst Church, where he was well-liked, and well-respected by almost everyone. Mark was respectful and supportive of uh, the elders of that congregation, and yet, when he periodically offered suggestions to the elders, they often passively rejected his advice. Mark uh, believed his elders did not respect his experience, his expertise, his knowledge, or his wisdom. And he wondered, could they feel that his recommendations threatened their authority as elders? They, wrote, they treated Mark as a respected employee, but they did not respect him as an equal leader in the congregation. Mark's story is a fictional one, completely. It's, though, a common experience, much more common than we would like to think. Uh, it's, uh, it's the reason that many of our best men leave ministry and go into other fields. The problems and solutions to, to this problem involve Three primary things. One is the Holy Spirit. The second is the Spirit's leadership gifts and roles. And the third is how spiritual gifts are to relate within Christ's body. When we're baptized into Christ, we're given one or more spiritual gifts or abilities as described in Romans 12, 6 through 8, 
and First Corinthians twelve, uh, and verses. Uh, well, actually, the, the whole chapter is, is devoted to this, and the, the the Holy Spirit gives these gifts. We're told in, in verses uh, eight through ten um, for the blessing of the body, the common good of our fellow Christians. Romans 12 and, and 1 Corinthians 12 impress that all of these gifts, all of these gifts are given by God's grace. Each one of these gifts, and this is particularly impressed in, in 1 Corinthians 12, each of these gifts is to be received in humility and without pride. Paul comes out a little bit differently in, in Romans chapter 12, but the same point is impressed. Each one is to be received in humility and without pride. 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 reveal the results for Christ's body when we do not receive them this way. And we know that this was a problem in the church in Corinth. There was a problem of, of uh, better... I've got better gifts, I've got more important gifts, I've got more flashy gifts, more impressive gifts than other people do. Uh, on the one hand, and the other hand was, here's Christians who, with gifts that they thought were paltry, that they thought were unimportant, that they thought were almost an insult, or so it seems. This kind of environment of not valuing every single gift and seeing it as necessary to the body creates three things. It creates an ungodly, unscriptural hierarchy which effectively perverts God's purposes and values for each gift. Secondly, it divides individual Christians and congregations. When arrogance sets in on the one hand and where lack of appreciation for gifts sets in on the other hand, it sets a congregation up for this kind of division. And thirdly, and, and perhaps most importantly, it dishonors the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are the originators of these gifts. As well to remember, when we go through and, and read these, these gifts, whether in Romans 12 or in 1 Corinthians 12, that much like the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit connect us with the character and the nature of God himself, because they are all replicated. They're all based in God's character and nature. And so if we're, if we're thinking that we're better than others because we have certain gifts, or if we're thinking that we are lesser than others because we have other gifts, we're slapping God in the face. He's the source of them. And so we, we need to rethink how we value these and rethink where they came from and rethink this idea that they were given to us by God's grace and that we need to accept these Humbly. We have to remember that, that all of these are, are given and given only by God. These gifts are spiritual in nature. They are they're designed by God to be used in a spiritual setting to accomplish God's spiritual purposes. Each gift is, is necessary for the maximum functioning of Christ's body. Each gift has a role fulfilling an invaluable purpose within the church that God has set up. So each spiritual gift must be valued, it must be used, 
It must be called upon rather than being ignored or thought more highly of and raised to such a level that if you don't have these great gifts, as we define great, that you are of no account, you're of no value. So whether or not a gift is for a leadership role in Christ's body, all gifts of the Holy Spirit must be respected and used. These these spiritual gifts and the spiritual roles which necessarily derive from them show us three things. First is that God knows what the church needs. Now sometimes we we kind of wring our hands and bewail the fact that, well, our congregation is small, our congregation is without certain spiritual gifts that that we think it needs, but we're not giving God enough credit. It may be that certain spiritual gifts are not being seen because we're not showing them. We're not using them. We're not even perhaps recognizing them because it, it doesn't seem to us that we are of value to the church. Therefore, we don't even think about the, the possibility that God has given us one or more gifts that could be valuable to God's kingdom and the local congregation. The second is that God has a plan for accomplishing his purposes through the church. That's why he gives us these gifts. They're for the church, first and foremost. And the third is, when God calls a person to serve him, he equips them for that service. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he doesn't equip us to accomplish. Power plays center around three issues. First, the, the structural order and importance of gifts and roles. Let me read that again. Power plays center around three issues. The first one is the structural order of importance of gifts and roles. And we often, through our own thinking or through the way that we have interpreted Scripture, are the ones who set up these orders and importance. The second is, um, how that order indicates who has authority. How that order indicates who has authority. I'm going to mention this just kind of almost a, a tangent here. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it for lack of time right now. This whole business of authority has dogged us as a fellowship for the better part of the 20th century. We still have remnants of it dogging us but it seemed to have been a central issue in the 20th century. I, I don't know exactly how it all came about, but it became an issue that rose up. And the interesting thing about it is there is almost nothing said in the New Testament about authority. And yet we made it a foremost issue. And by making it that, it became a point of contention and division. It became something it was never intended to be by God. And then the third, the third um, uh, issue that comes up in this at power plays is who qualifies as a leader? Who qualifies as a leader? If you're in a congregation that has elders, are the elders the leaders and the only leaders? Are deacons leaders? 
are ministers leaders? We often kind of batch that whole thing together, don't we, those three roles. And yet we don't define what that really means. It's kind of like in church. If you stand up to do some kind of service in church, you're deemed a leader. But let's be honest. If you're passing out communion, are you leading anybody? Is that a leader? If you say a prayer, are you leading anybody necessarily? Everybody's saying their own prayer. Or they're listening to yours. Are you really leading them? Is, is a deacon a leader? Well, he may be a leader of his area of ministry, but the word deacon, by definition, means servant, servant not leader. So we, we think about these things, or we use these terms very broadly, but without definition of who is what and why. And by way of that, we really confuse what's going on. Consider this. The New Testament records conflict over many things, including gifts, spiritual gifts. But it does not indicate that there were conflicts about leadership in congregations. Paul never, John never, Peter never, nobody ever wrote about Problems about leadership in the New Testament. Who was and who was not. Or conflicts between people in leadership. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28 gives this order. And the church, and in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then, workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in various kinds of tongues. Only the first three are ranked, indicating the primacy of their role in church. The purposes of apostles, prophets, and teachers in the Bible shows that each fulfills a leadership role. By their nature, they are leading people spiritually. But as we consider the gifts and roles in verse 28, we find gifts which lead to the roles of preacher and elder. Leadership roles are spelled out in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. There it says of Christ... It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Verse 11 does not address an order of importance as much as an inclusion of roles in leadership functions. Let me say that again. It does not address an order of importance as much as an inclusive inclusion of roles in leadership functions. Each of these roles show up in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament in a leadership role. 1 Corinthians 12 and, and Ephesians 4 list these leadership roles as working cooperatively to achieve the same goals. 
while Paul seems to present these five roles as if for five different people in any given congregation, the work of ministers actually encompasses all five leadership roles that are in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Elders and ministers necessarily have role overlap due to their scripture-driven responsibilities. So ministers are not only paid professional teachers of God's word, but they are also functionally paid pastors or elders. Now, those of you who, who are ministers, who have been ministers, have you found that to be true? It may not necessarily be that you sought that, but more likely it came to you. And if you're in a congregation that has no elders, and you're the preacher, as far as everybody else in the congregation is concerned, you're the pastor. Whether you like to carry that title or not, you are the pastor, because people come to you as if you were an elder. Because there aren't elders. And even if there's a congregation that, that has men who are effective leaders but don't carry the title of elder, more than likely, most people will come to you as the minister. And they look at you as the pastor. It's role overlap. And it's necessarily that case. Without trying to seek it or be it, it's just fallen to you. In Acts chapter 20, and in verses 17 through 38, Paul called the Ephesian elders to him. Did you ever notice that? Paul didn't say, and I, I've reached this point in my going back to, to Jerusalem that I'm going to go down and see the Ephesian elders, so I'm going to make a side trip here and I'm going to go down and see them. He called them to him. I can't even imagine that today. I can't imagine that happening today. He reminded them of his time with them and where he was going, and he encouraged them in their role as elders. This text could be interpreted as Paul, a minister, having authority over these elders. But it seems much more likely that he was calling for longtime fellow workers to come and see him, and of him saying farewell to them for the last time. And when you read the whole of that text, you're struck by the, the loving relationship that they had with one another. Because at the end of it, it talks about them leaning down together and not only praying, but crying. They loved each other. This, this issue of authority, whether Paul's or the elders, was not an issue. When, when Paul called for them to come to him, they didn't rear up their necks and say, who does he think he is? He's just a preacher. He's just a minister. We're elders. We're in charge. We're the authority. It doesn't even exist that way. They had worked together as complementary parts of Christ's body in Ephesus to achieve God's purposes. Each had spiritual roles which proceeded from their spiritual gifts. Their roles intersected necessarily, but neither exerted authority over the other except in accordance with the responsibilities given to their roles in Scripture. The selection of elders and deacons by ministers in the first century, and of course we read about that midway through Acts, uh, suggests to some people that ministers had authority over elders. But 
Further examination suggests that, that selection involved ministers, the congregation, prayer, and perhaps above all, the Holy Spirit. So, conflicts arise between ministers and church leaders, whether elders or others, over first misunderstandings of God's intended cooperative leadership of ministers and elders. They arise, secondly, over the mutual respect God intends for ministers and elders to have for one another. And third, over the overblown issue of authority. A contributing factor to to minister and elder conflict has been our vision of the organizational structure of the church. When Christianity became the Roman Empire's state religion, it duplicated the Roman government's organizational structure. And this format became the standard organizational structure of most organizations, and we see it particularly in America today. The Protestant Reformation did not substantially change that structural format. Larger congregations in our fellowship often applied it, as in chart one that you have in your packet there. And so congregations in many places are structured like corporations. Uh, This is certainly true in in large uh, churches outside our fellowship, but uh, I'm told that if you were to go into the Bible Belt, to larger cities and larger churches, that very often they're formatted the very same way. Smaller congregations have perceived it a little differently, as you see in in chart two. And it carries what we would call today a a traditional scriptural approach. In other words, it's how we read and interpret scripture and the format that we uh, see and that we have tended to follow in most of our congregations over decades and decades. And we've done so with both of these formats in what I would call an unquestioned way. In other words, whatever we have gotten used to within whatever setting we've been, whether it's been the the corporation approach or the small church approach, we've tended to perpetuate those uh, as being the way it is. And we've not really thought about should this be the way it is or not. And we've not thought about the implications of these. We've not thought about how does this fit with what we read about in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Is this the reflection of that, or has this become the historical, traditional model that we've just perpetuated without thinking about whether this is spiritual or whether we're working off what we think is more functional? Was this God's plan, or have we kind of put that aside because there's something else that society has had that became adopted and adapted and that we've used without further thought. God describes the organizational structure of the church as a physical body. And we see that, of course, very clearly in 1 Corinthians 12. It represents, uh, is represented in chart 3. Now, as you look at that chart, please don't misunderstand uh, that the fact that 
um, elders are down somewhere near the feet. That it's not intentional or intended to derive uh, elders at all. That, uh, the person putting this uh, together for me was putting things, rolls, and, and whatnot all over the body uh, without thought of where they fell. So it's not to say that ministers are above elders, and it's not to suggest that, that elders are to be walked on. Don't, don't take that kind of implication from it. It's rather to, to put the point to that there's only one head, and that's Christ. And that we serve all of us under him. And that no one role is less than or more than another. No one gift is greater or lesser than another. They're all to be appreciated. They're all to be respected. They're all to be valued. They're all to be used. They all are needed. And above all, there is not a hierarchy that is suggested by 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Not a hierarchy. So we must change the way we perceive the organizational structure of the church and its roles. Beyond what we've considered today, conflicts between ministers and elders can arise due to doctrinal interpretations. We know that that's something that right now Great many congregations are struggling with, aren't they? How do we interpret the things about instrumental music, for example? How do we interpret things about the role of women in the church? How do we interpret things about LGBTQT or TQ or whatever? How do we how do we interpret things about the things we've always believed were the way it ought to be, but as as others start looking at them, they realize they don't hold up in light of scripture. They really are traditions, not really doctrines. And yet we realize there's folks who hold to these tenaciously because this is the way they were raised. This is what was impressed on them when they were growing up in their formative years. There's, um, there's conflicts that arise between ministers and elders due to personality differences. Some people are just in the wrong place. There's nothing wrong with them or their beliefs or their personality. They just are in the wrong place. There's a personality conflict situation. Sometimes it's the minister just doesn't click with a congregation. There's conflict doing, uh, having to do with differing priorities. There's conflicts uh, in terms of uh, differences between the direction of a minister and elders. There's often conflicts that have to do, let's be honest, with power. One or more elders want power in the congregation. They want power over everybody in the congregation, including the minister. And sometimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes the minister wants all the power in the congregation. And of course, you know that there are many other lesser issues. How, how many things does it take? How little can the issue be to rise up and tear up a congregation between elders ministers. Pretty petty, can't it be? Pretty petty. All of the conflicts between elders and ministers can be resolved if we will do three things. I want to ask you to really think about these things in a prayerful sense. The first is we must do exactly as Paul urged in Romans chapter 12 in verse 3. For by the grace given me, 
I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Whether we are elders or ministers, we can think of ourselves more highly than we ought, rather than with sober judgment. We must not, though, think of ourselves as being in positions of power, but think of ourselves as being positions of awesome responsibility. You know, anytime ministers get together, invariably, they'll not only start lying about the, their church growth, <laughs> but they will also invariably start talking about uh, the terrible elders they have. How they just, they're just ignorant. They just don't know anything about the Bible or interpretation. They, they're, not, they're not thinkers uh, about the future of the church. They're not, they're not into strategic planning. They're not, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not. And they just don't appreciate me. They just don't appreciate my, my insights, my, my experience, my education, um, my continuing education, my contacts with other ministers, the uh, continuing education that I go to that gives me fresh insights all the time. You know, it, that's just common. And I won't ask you guys who are ministers to raise your hand and, and agree to that. I, I just know it's true. Because I'm one who's done that to my shame. What ought to be happening instead is a whole lot of repentance on our parts and um, confession to God about our arrogance and um, prayer for those with whom we have disagreement or even conflict that God change our hearts and perhaps theirs as well. But at the very least that we intentionally with God's help change our attitude about one another and start praying with one another and getting to know and appreciate one another more and step down from our sense of we want to be in charge that we want to have the authority to say where things ought to go and we may not think of it in terms of authority, but effectively it comes down to we want the power to control what goes on here. Second, we must submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, this is all about Holy Spirit. We are recipients of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We are recipients of the spiritual gifts that we have, whether we know them or not, whether we know what they are or not, whether we're using them or not, whether perhaps we are abusing them, whether we're using them wrongly. But we are recipients of the indwelling and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He is in us which should change our attitudes in and of itself, shouldn't it? He is in us to guide us. 
And he will bring about in us the, nece the necessary transformation process that's described in Romans chapter 12 and 1 through 2. It's very easy to become almost obsessed with Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 through 2 when it talks about transformation. Um, whether minister or elder because of what we perceive within the congregation. What I mean is what we perceive all too often is a lack of transformation. But the transformation has to take place first in us. And if we become frustrated or arrogant and condemning of others who are not being transformed, but we've not really applied that wholeheartedly and earnestly and humbly to ourselves and are working on that constantly, we're no one to talk. He will bring about in us that necessary transformation if we will allow him to, if we will submit to him, if we will focus on that and make that the highest priority we have. If that is paramount in our lives, then we who are ministers and elders will think and interact with greater Christ-like love toward everyone including and perhaps most importantly of all with fellow elders and ministers. We'll discipline ourselves to follow the entreaty of Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3 to live lives worthy of our calling to Christ. We'll, we'll seek to be completely humble and gentle, patient, humble, Bearing with one another in love. We'll make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that's, that's a challenge for us. But, but I think it well to, to realize that that's, that's put out not as a call for certain people within the congregation. And to think that those of us who are elders and ministers are somehow above it. That, well, naturally... We do these things. We don't do anything naturally except be non-spiritual. So again, as of the Romans 12, 1 and 2, this entreaty that's placed on us uh, here in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, is a very significant beginning place for us in our spiritual growth personally, and our relationships mutually. And then third, we who are ministers and elders must exchange our concerns about authority for concerns about working together as one to accomplish the responsibilities God has commanded us to fulfill and to do so not to our glory, but to His. Together, as elders and ministers in congregations. We must define clearly, in mutuality, define how we will interact. And we must commit to that in respect, in unity, and in love. And that means that we don't, we don't assume the worst about one another. That we don't 
make accusations to other people about what we think about this person that is not proven to be true. That we don't assume that because we disagree on something that therefore. But that we, we think charitably of one another. That we think the best of one another. That we make no assumptions that are negative about one another. If we make any assumptions, they're the better, not the worse. So together we must define how we will interact and we must commit to that in respect and unity and love. As Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 uh, counsels, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's a hard thing to do. A hard thing to do. But the beginning place is not one another. The beginning place is out of reverence for Christ and what that implies. That implication has to do with me personally, my, my life conduct, the way I think, the way I speak, the way I act. It leads then to in relationships, how I conduct myself, how I think, what are my first thoughts? Are they my ideas? Are they my will? Are they to my glory? Or is it Christ? Have I submitted to Christ? And then, because of that, I submit to others. You know, you might think of this as, as kind of a rewording, if you will, of what Jesus calls the second greatest commandment. Compared to the first greatest commandment. It's just a different way of looking at it. But it's putting it into application format. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If we will do those things, it sounds simple on paper, all of which come out of Scripture, but are very difficult and challenging and ongoing for us in our own personal lives and relationships, in family, in church, and beyond. Then we will be able to effectively resolve conflicts between ministers and all church leaders and be able to further the work of the church in our congregation in a greater way and above all to the glory of God. For a, uh, a fuller biblical treatment of God's design for ministers and elders uh, to relate in a leadership setting, I urge you in the strongest of ways to go on the website that's listed on your handout. And there you will find seven excellent biblical articles written by Tim Woodruff. Tim Woodruff is in charge of Interim Ministry Partners, which is under the umbrella of Hope Network. Tim has thoroughly studied and put these together from Scripture, and uh, I think you will find them challenging, inspiring, and encouraging. And it could be a new day for your congregation. Whether there is open conflict or not, you will find these pieces from Scripture will help you to think through and see how the relationships ought to be, need to be, must be, to have maximum effectiveness in the congregation. And if you struggle with this issue that we've talked about today, if there's struggles going on in your congregations, if, if elders are conflicted with one another, 
or one or more of the elders or leaders are conflicted with the preacher, or the preacher is the, 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 course of the, the source of the problem, I, I urge you to study and pray about this subject. The things offered by me today, the things that, that uh, Tim offers, and what God's Word has to say about it. Uh, and to pray about it with those who are having conflict. And to address it straightforwardly in humility. Because these things, these conflicts will not grow, go away. They will not lessen. They will only get more so if they are left untreated. And think about, think about the kind of model and example they offer to the rest of the congregation. Think about people who would be elders or who would be ministers who are functioning in a way that is not according to God's will. And what that does to those who would think possibly in the future about being ministers or elders. That's all I, I have basically to present. Are, are there any questions, any comments anyone wants to say in regards to any of this? Yes. Um, one, of, one, of, um, one of my biggest concerns and, and issues as far as uh, conflicts, uh, not just between leadership and the minister, but uh, it's the, the family's negative attitudes a lot of times. Uh, if somebody's going to find some little something uh, to bring up about somebody that's totally irrelevant, but it becomes an issue, and then they talk to somebody else, and then uh, I wish they'd just bring it to me to start with, and I can kind of halfway share some reasons why that's not a negative, it's a plus, but it doesn't work that easy. Everybody's got an issue, it seems like, sometimes. And, and I'm, I'm telling you like it's a big problem, and it's not. <laughs> but but it, it, I, wish you, I wish I could, uh, I, I could be able to, to contact these things and, 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 and resolve them before they get spread around. You know, How do you do that? In, in congregations, when we hear about some issue, whatever the issue may be that, that's a negative issue, if, if we've heard about one, it's more likely times at times ten. So it, you think it's a small issue, it may be much larger than, than you think. And you know, once gossiping, grumbling begin, it's like wildfire. And there'll be people who will be resistant to it, there'll be people who ignore it, there'll be people who are turned off by it and just leave, or who will become peripheral. But there will also be a lot of people who will be caught up by it. And they will believe it to be true, even though it may not be true at all. Or, or there's an element of truth that has been exaggerated and taken totally out of context. You know, we, we have our certain favorite uh, sins that we like to talk a lot about in the church, don't we? Like to preach and teach about a lot. But when was the last time you heard any class or sermon on gossip or murmuring? Doesn't uh, scripture have something to say about that? Maybe we need to do a lot more teaching and preaching about the things that, that are part of us that we have not let go of yet. The transformation hasn't happened in, in us yet. That we need to address, and address openly, kindly, humbly, but clearly. And say, this is an elephant in the room. And this is why, this is why our kids grow up and say, I don't want to be around that bunch of hypocrites. Because if they say one thing... And then they do this other. They're not stupid. 
So maybe, maybe that's part of it right there, is recognizing it, realizing there's more to it, and then speaking to it. Betty? I have more of a comment than a question. I think when um, somebody brings to a leadership or a preacher or anybody in the church a complaint about somebody else, the scripture tells us what to do. They're not to bring it to the elders before they take it to the person that has sinned against them. So as a leadership or as um, a minister leader, ministry leader, somebody brings something to you, what's the first thing you're supposed to do? The scripture teaches about it. What a concept. We have the answers. We had an elder several years ago when people in the congregation would come to him about some issue they had with somebody, some slight they had or something that offended them or whatever it was. His first response was, have you talked with them about it? And their usual response was almost 100% was, well, no, I haven't. And he said, then I don't want to hear about it. Because you've not followed the scriptural pattern that, that we're to do as Christians. His other approach was, you haven't? I'll go with you. Let's go with him right with me right now. Let's go talk. Oh, 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 no, 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 no. I, I don't want to talk with him about it. I want to hold a grudge. I want to think that they're sinning against me and, 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 and they're doing something that's offended me, but I don't want to straighten it out. Where does that what kind of attitude is that for a Christian? Other thoughts or comments or questions? Yes, ma'am. Just um, like going Betty, like off of her comment, I think um, it's very important for ministers and elders to direct their sheep and understanding a difference between someone sinning against you and someone just doing something that you don't agree with. Mm -hmm. There's a level of spiritual maturity that has to come into that. And so sometimes we, we think someone's sinning, but it's just because that's not what we traditionally agree with. That's right. And there's a difference. That's right. Or, and sometimes, quite frankly, it's interesting how we amass these people in the church the people who are the quickest and easiest to be offended are the ones who speak out about it the most. But they will—they are the first to be offended if you try to correct them. I taught a class here just recently at a congregation on, on offense, taking offense. Um, I've had people come to me over the years and, and take issue with something I said because, and it wasn't I had not sinned, they just didn't agree with me, like you said. Uh, or it was something that they had a particular issue about. I, I, I preached something one time, and um, a, a fellow came up to me, and, and he just put his finger in my chest and, and got in my face, uh, and, and he let me know that I had defended him because he thought that what I said was directed toward him and his beliefs. And about um, 12 hours later, he came to me and apologized because he realized he was taking very personally something. In this case, it was a, a political issue. I wasn't addressing politics at all, but he that's how he filtered through his brain. And that really offended him. And he thought I was talking to him. I wasn't talking to him at all. And I wasn't talking about politics. But, you know, that happens. Thank God he had the maturity to cool down, think about it, and come and apologize. But as I was teaching this class about taking offense, I, I, I raised the issue of have you been offended by, by something, uh, by someone? And as the, con the, uh, the class 
uh, went on. I talk about what, what, is the, what does offense do to us personally? It's like cancer, isn't it? Um, we allow that to work at us and work at us. We don't do anything to correct it, to get it worked out. And so we have offense at a brother or sister that we let fester forever. And, and so I raise the issue, if someone has done something that you consider an offense, should you forgive them? And this one lady said, that depends. That depends. If they come and apologize to me, I won't be offended. If they don't apologize to me, I'll be offended forever. And I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What did Jesus say in the sermon about forgiving our debts? But that, we, we become very myopic, don't we? We become very self-focused, which says, again, we have not gone through this transformation process uh, of being changed from the world. We're still conformed to the world rather than being transformed to the thinking of God and looking first and foremost at his values and putting behind what were our values. It's still all pretty much about us. We may be kind. We may do some really good things. But still, fundamentally, it's about us. Anybody else? Yes. I think sometimes I do run into some diatrophies type of leaders. You get in the position, and and you reach a point where you say this is not working, um, and you, you do need to sometimes bring in some outside yes. consultants, get some other people's ideas on it, and uh, it's kind of like. When you see in the magazine the ten best places to work in your industry, you say, "Wow, I wish this church was one of the ten best places to work, to serve, to fellowship, to worship." And uh, sometimes there are some diatrophies that keep that from happening. Yes. And that's when you get into a challenge. Uh, and you know, sometimes we can all be that diatrophies, but. That's, uh, I think it's kind of, I wish there was a sequel to what happened after the Apostle showed up. <laughs> yes. You know, I suspect that church was better because of it, but I don't know how that played out. Well, we know that there were conflicts like we've talked about today going on in Corinth. Yeah. You know, Paul's second letter tells us a lot about that. It also tells us a lot about Paul. You know, we, we think in, in churches today that we want this charismatic preacher. But Paul says of himself, they didn't think I was very charismatic at Corinth. Yeah. So, but what he was, was very humble, self-effacing, um, very scripture-oriented, very God-oriented. Um, he was, it was not all about him. It was all about Christ church. I think as a as a body of believers, we ought to love and honor our new creatures mm-hmm. and help them move into the next phase of their ministry because there are not that many creatures coming into work full time. If we don't nurture them, love them, support them, um, nurture them as a body, we're not going to help them. They're going to say, this is too much. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this to my family. And they're going to be out of here. We need to have a whole lot more grace for one another. Um, very few ministers probably um, are really qualified to be elders. 
and probably even those who are qualified probably shouldn't be. You've got, you're, you're juggling too many balls, for one thing. The other side of the coin is most elders have never been ministers. And they oftentimes think they know what ministers ought to do and how ministers ought to preach, etc. But they've never done it. And they've, never, they've, they've not trained themselves for that. And that becomes then really an insult for ministers. So we need to give each other grace and we need to do a whole lot of prayer for one another uh, just to lower the, the temperature and, and start really appreciating the fact that, and I think this, you know, having been a minister for all these years, I have come to appreciate the fact that elders see things from a different vantage point than I do as a minister. I may have what I think are some of the best ideas on earth, and I bring them into an elders meeting, and I think that I've lined all my ducks up, but I'm not seeing it from their chair. And I've had more than one occasion them listen to me, and then a, a moment or two later say, have you thought about this? And I hadn't, because I don't sit in that chair. I sit in my chair. That, that can change the tenor of relationship a lot to give things time and, and to try to, to think. And, and if, you, if you are just unable as a minister to think in the seat of an elder, then find one of the elders that you have a closeness to and sit down and say, this is something I'm thinking about. Will you troubleshoot it with me? And that can grow a greater relationship there and a greater relationship when or if you take that idea into the eldership. Yes. Do you have any list of recommendations of books about eldership, or maybe like what they were saying, the the system rules, or like a little cheat sheet for churches? <laughs> <laughs> any books you recommend? Um, there is a book written by a fellow outside our fellowship. By it's um, it's called um, Elders. It's written by uh, Alexander Strouch, S-T-R-A-U-C-H, I believe it is. He is a, a self, he describes himself as a, a teaching elder at a church in Colorado. Uh, the book has been around for probably easily 20 years, and he's got a companion volume on deacons as well. Um, I will tell you, of, of the many books I've read on elderships, Strouch's material is the most biblical I have ever read. It is just solid. You read it and you think, why, why haven't we been doing this in our fellowship? And, and there's a workbook that goes with it. So elders can sit down and read the book and then go through the workbook together and, and, and have a real basis for conversation and development. It would take them probably, honestly, a year to go through it and be worth every moment of it. I, I guess I would recommend that in, in terms of just the overall task of being a shepherd. There's a lot more new material that has come out in the last 10 years or so dealing with various aspects of, of eldering that um, I think is very good. Uh, it gets away from kind of um, the same old thing over and over and over that we've had for basically 100 years. So I, I think um, kind of asking around with some some ministers uh, who are frequented with uh, that kind of thing, you'll get different things for, from different generations. Um, there's some great stuff from every generation. It just all depends on what you're, what you're looking for.
that's kind of beating around the bush, I guess, in a way, but it just kind of depends on your situation. Other thoughts? We've got just a couple of minutes. Mark, anything to add to this? Um, I can uh, echo something that you said just a second ago. Uh, I served as an elder as well as a minister at the congregation, and it was extremely difficult. And so the next time we re-upped or, you know, we re reevaluated uh, who was going to serve as elders, I, I bet. I back down and uh, became just just the pulpit minister instead of serving both. And I think that was much better. At least it was for me. It worked better. It's often like giving two full-time jobs to a man. Yeah. Um, and it, it often puts you in a very complicated yeah. cross-purposes position. That's not to say, I suppose, that it can't work. I've, I've talked to some friends that it worked very well for them. In their circumstance and situation, but I, I can identify with what you said. About ten years ago, I was uh, an elder and with an elder that was the minister, and that brought them all kind of complications. It does. One of which is how the other elders evaluate that that elder as a minister uh, gracefully. He feels on the outside. It ended up being me and him because some of the others moved on, and when that happened, I. Didn't have a lot of choice but to bow out to eliminate the other Yeah. Then start back up later. It's just awkward. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for your comments and thoughts, and I pray that uh, you will uh, be able to use this in a profitable way to God's glory. Thank you. Um.